Mr. Van Hollen, Mr. Van Hollen, aye. Mrs. Gillibrand, Mrs. Gillibrand, aye. Mr. Manchin, Mr. Manchin, aye. Mr. Langford, Mr. Langford, no. Cantwell, Miss Cantwell, aye. Mr. Graham, Mr. Graham, no. Mrs. Brett, Mrs. Brett, no. Mr. Rubio, Mr. Rubio, no. Mr. Rish, Mr. Rish, aye. Mrs. Capito, Mrs. Capito, aye. Mr. Bennett, Mr. Bennett, aye.
Mr. King, Mr. King, aye. Mr. Blumenthal, Mr. Blumenthal, aye. Mr. Vance, Mr. Vance, no. Mr. Wicker, Mr. Wicker, aye. Mr. Tuberville, Mr. Tuberville, no. Mr. Hawley, Mr. Hawley, no. Mr. Wyden, Mr. Wyden, aye. Mr. Paul, Mr. Paul, no. Mr. Hoven, Mr. Hoven, aye. Mr. Bozeman, Mr. Bozeman, aye.
Mr. Cornyn, Mr. Cornyn, aye. Cruz, Mr. Cruz. No. Mr. Markey, Mr. Markey, aye. Mr. Romney, Mr. Romney, aye. Mr. Brown, Mr. Brown, aye. Kelly, Mr. Kelly, aye. Mr. Casey, Mr. Casey, aye. Mr. Reed, Mr. Reed, aye. Five. 
Mr. Coons, Mr. Coons. Mr. Merkley, Mr. Merkley, no. Mrs. Shaheen, Mrs. Shaheen, aye. Ms. Klobuchar, Ms. Klobuchar, aye. Mr. Haggerty, Mr. Haggerty, no. Mr. Lujan, Mr. Lujan, aye. Mr. Young, Mr. Young, aye. Mr. Schmidt, Mr. Schmidt, no. 
Mr. Kennedy, Mr. Kennedy, aye. Mr. Moran. Aye. Mr. Moran, aye. Mr. Crapo, Mr. Crapo, aye. Mr. Carper, Mr. Carper, aye. Mr. Scott, Mr. Scott of Florida, no. Mr. Booker, Mr. Booker, aye.
Mr. Rono, Mr. Rono, aye. Mr. Bud, Mr. Bud, no. Mrs. Blackburn, Mrs. Blackburn, no. Mr. Braun, Mr. Braun, no. Mr. Ossoff, Mr. Ossoff, aye. Mr. Sullivan, Mr. Sullivan, aye. Mr. Marshall, Mr. Marshall, no.
Mr. McConnell, Mr. McConnell, aye. Mr. Welch, Mr. Welch, no.
Mr. Kramer, Mr. Kramer, aye. Mr. Tillis, Mr. Tillis, aye.
Mr. Fetterman, Mr. Fetterman. Uh,
Mr. Johnson, Mr. Johnson, no.
Mr. Cassidy. Mr. Cassidy. Aye. On this vote, the yeas are 70, the nays are 29. The bill, as amended, passes. Mr. President. Majority Leader. Thank you, Mr. President. Could we please have some order? Well, Mr. President, it's been a long night, a long weekend, and a long few months. But a new day is here, and our efforts have been more than worth it. Today, we witnessed one of the most historic and consequential bills to have ever passed the Senate. It's certainly been years, perhaps decades, since the Senate passed a bill that so greatly impacts not just our national security, not just the security of our allies, but the security of Western democracy. As I have said, if we want the world to remain a safe place for freedom, for democratic principles, for our future prosperity, then America must lead the way. And with this bill, the Senate declares that American leadership will not waver, will not falter, will not fail. With this bill, the Senate keeps its word to Ukrainians in desperate need of supplies and ammunition, to innocent Palestinian civilians in need of relief, to Israelis in need of support, and to U.S. service members on patrol in the Indo-Pacific, the Red Sea, and around the world. Today, we make Vladimir Putin regret the day he questioned America's resolve. And we make clear to others, like China's President Xi, not to test our determination. And we send a clear bipartisan message of resolve to our allies in NATO. With the strong bipartisan support we have here in the Senate, with this vote, I believe that if Speaker Johnson brought this bill to the House floor, it will pass with the same strong bipartisan support. I thank all of my colleagues, Democrat and Republican alike, who supported this bill. Thank you to Senators Murray and Collins, Murphy, Sinema, Lankford. Thank you to Leader McConnell. And thank you to all the senators and staffs, including my own great staff, who worked through Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's and even the Super Bowl to get this done. Finally, these past few months have been a great test for the U.S. Senate to see if we could escape 
the constant centrifugal pull of partisanship, and summon the will to defend Western democracy when it mattered most. This morning, the Senate has resoundingly passed that test. Now, Mr. President, I move to proceed to executive session to consider calendar number 468. Questions on the motion? All those in favor say aye. Aye. In, any opposed nay? The ayes appear to have it. The ayes do have it. The motion is agreed to. The clerk will report the nomination. Nomination, the judiciary, Jacqueline Becerra of Florida to be United States District Judge for the Southern District of Florida. I send a cloture motion to the desk. The clerk will report. Cloture motion. We, the undersigned senators, in accordance with the provisions of Rule 22 of the Standing Rules of the Senate, do hereby move to bring to a close the debate on the nomination of Executive Calendar Number 468, Jacqueline Becerra of Florida, to be United States District Judge for the Southern District of Florida, signed by 17 senators as follows. I ask consent the reading of the names be waived. Without objection. I move to proceed to legislative session. Question is on the motion. All those in favor say aye. Aye. Any opposed, nay. The ayes appear to have it. The ayes do have it. The motion is agreed to. I move to proceed to executive session to consider calendar 470. The question is on the motion. All, all those in favor say aye. Aye. Any opposed, nay. The ayes appear to have it. The ayes do have it. The motion is agreed to. The clerk will report the nomination. Nomination, the judiciary. David Seymour Leibowitz of Florida to be United States District Judge for the Southern District of Florida. I send a cloture motion to the desk. Clerk will report. Cloture motion. We, the undersigned senators, in accordance with the provisions of Rule 22 of the Standing Rules of the Senate, do hereby move to bring to a close the debate on the nomination of Executive Counter Number 470, David Seymour Leibowitz of Florida, to be United States District Judge for the Southern District of Florida, signed by 17 senators, as follows. I ask consent the reading of the names be waived. Without objection. I move to proceed to legislative session. Question is on the motion. All those in favor say aye. Aye. Any opposed, nay. The ayes appear to have it. The ayes do have it. The motion is agreed to. I move to proceed to executive session to consider calendar 455. Questions on the motion? All those in favor say aye. Aye. Any opposed, nay. The ayes appear to have it. The ayes do have it. The motion is agreed to. Clerk will report the nomination. Nomination, Office of Special Counsel, Hampton Y. Dellinger of North Carolina to be special counsel. I send a cloture motion to the desk. Clerk will report. Cloture motion. We, the undersigned senators, in accordance with the provisions of Rule 22 of the Standing Rules of the Senate, do hereby move to bring to a close the debate on the nomination of Executive Calendar Number 455, Hampton Y. Dellinger of North Carolina, to be Special Counsel, Office of Special Counsel, signed by 18 senators as follows. I ask consent the reading of the names be waived. Without objection. I ask unanimous consent that mandatory quorum calls for the cloture motions filed today, February 13th, be waived. Without objection. Mr. President, I ask unanimous consent the Senate proceed to legislative session be in a period of morning business with senators permitted to speak therein up to 10 minutes each. Without objection. Mr. President, I ask unanimous consent that the Senate now proceed to the on block consideration of the following Senate resolutions submitted earlier today. 
Senate Res 560, Senate Res 561, Senate Res 562, Senate Res 563, Senate Res 564. Is there objection to proceeding on block? Hearing none, note without objection. I ask unanimous consent that the resolutions be agreed to, the preambles be agreed to, and the motions to reconsider be considered made and laid upon the table, all on block. Without objection. Mr. President, I ask unanimous consent the Senate proceed to the immediate consideration of SCON Res 29. The clerk will report. SCON Res 29, concurrent resolution providing for a correction in the enrollment of H.R. 815. Without objection, the Senate will proceed. I further ask the concurrent resolution be agreed to, the motion to reconsider be considered made and laid upon the table with no intervening action or debate. Without objection. Mr. President, I ask unanimous consent that the appointment at the desk appear separately in the record as if made by the chair. Without objection. Mr. President, I ask unanimous consent that notwithstanding the upcoming adjournment of the Senate, the President of the Senate, the President pro tem, the Senate, the President pro tem, and the majority and minority leaders be authorized to make appointments to commissions, committees, boards, conferences, or interparliamentary conferences authorized by law, by concurrent action of the two houses, or by order of the Senate. Without objection. Mr. President, finally, I ask unanimous consent that when the Senate completes its business today, it adjourn to then convene for pro forma sessions only with no business being conducted on the following dates and times, and that the following, and that following each pro forma session, the Senate adjourn until the next pro forma session, Friday, February 16th at 3.30 p.m., Tuesday, February 20th at 9 a.m., Friday, February 23rd at 3 p.m. Further, that when the Senate adjourns on Friday, February 23rd, it stand adjourned until 3 p.m. on Monday, Feb 26th, that on Monday following the prayer and pledge, the journal of proceedings be approved to date. The morning hour be deemed expired. The time for the two leaders be reserved for their use later in the day. And Senator Cardin be recognized to deliver Washington's farewell address as provided under the previous order. And that following his remarks, morning business be closed. Following the conclusion of morning business, the Senate proceed to executive session to resume consideration of the Becerra nomination. Further, that the, cloture, that the cloture motions filed during today's session ripen at 5.30 p.m. on Monday. Without objection. If there's no further business to come before the Senate, I ask that it stand adjourned under the previous order following the remarks of Senator Welch. Without objection. Uh, Mr. President. Senator from Vermont. Uh, Mr. President, this is indeed an historic day, the passage of the National Security Supplemental Appropriations Bill. And I want to commend the extraordinary work of Leader Schumer, of Leader McConnell, of our Appropriation Chair and Vice Chair, Senator Murray, and Senator Collins, and also our colleagues who worked so hard on the bipartisan border agreement that was ultimately repudiated by the Republicans. The supplemental includes important additional military aid for Ukraine and Taiwan and aid for Israel and humanitarian aid for the Palestinians and other vulnerable populations. And I unequivocally support the additional aid for Ukraine. It's facing an existential threat. And for 
we must pass that aid. I'm very pleased to see that Ukraine is going to be receiving the aid it desperately needs. Putin must be stopped. The other provision in the supplemental I strongly support is funding for the humanitarian aid for Palestinians and for humanitarian catastrophes around the globe. But the situation in Gaza is what is of great concern to me. It is horrific. Two million Palestinians have been uprooted from their homes. Those homes have been reduced to rubble. Folks are desperately seeking to survive. They lack adequate food, safe water, or shelter. Many are injured without anything remotely resembling sufficient medical care or shelter. And I introduced a resolution co-sponsored by 15 of my colleagues urging the administration to dramatically increase access and delivery of humanitarian aid for Palestinians in Gaza. And I am gratified that the supplemental does include several billions of dollars for that purpose. But despite these provisions that I do support, I voted against the supplemental for one key reason. I cannot, in good conscience, support sending billions of additional taxpayer dollars for Prime Minister Netanyahu's military campaign in Gaza. It's a campaign that has killed and wounded a shocking number of civilians. It's created a massive humanitarian crisis with no end in sight. It's inflamed tensions in the Middle East, eroding support among Arab states that had been aligned with Israel. And of course, it has severely compromised any remaining hope, almost all remaining hope, for the two-state solution that we all know is ultimately essential for peace in the Middle East. And this is an opinion that's not just my own, but it's expressed by a large majority of Vermonters who have contacted me and shared their dismay at the humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza. And during my years in Congress, uh, Mr. President, like you, I have voted for tens of billions of dollars in aid for Israel. But I cannot send more taxpayer dollars to support Prime Minister Netanyahu's continued bombardment in the wholesale destruction of Gaza, knowing that the calamity that more U.S. bombs and artillery shells will cause for countless more civilians who had nothing, nothing whatsoever to do with the atrocities that were committed by Hamas terrorists on October 7th. You know, as I made clear on November 28th when I called for an indefinite ceasefire in Gaza, really for the purpose of saving civilian lives. We all do want Hamas gone. They are terrorists. The depth and cruelty of Hamas perpetrated against innocent, defenseless people, many of them women and children, was appalling. It was reminiscent of the brutality of ISIS. The viciousness of the Hamas attack was intended to terrorize and tra traumatize all Israelis. And it goes without saying that Israel has a right and responsibility to pursue those who ordered and carried out the October 7th attacks. But Israel's enemy is Hamas, not the Palestinian people. And neither Israel nor any country has the right to use lethal force in ways that violate the laws of armed conflict by inflicting egregious 
and disproportionate harm to civilians. Palestinian civilians are, by definition, innocent. They are defenseless, as were Hamas's victims. Yet what has occurred in Gaza, using weapons and munitions provided by the United States, and what will continue to occur as long as Prime Minister Netanyahu pursues his current war strategy is more of the same. It's a strategy which I and many others believe is deeply flawed. It has cost more than 28,000 Palestinian lives. Netanyahu's war plan has never been articulated beyond his oft-repeated refrain of pursuing nothing less than the complete destruction of Hamas and the release of the hostages. Like many of us, I have spoken with families of hostages who are desperately waiting for the safe return of their loved ones, who are trapped in the vast network of Hamas tunnels, narrow, cloistered, dark tunnels as Israeli bombs explode above. It's hard to imagine anything that's more terrifying for the hostages as well as for their families as the weeks turn into months with no end in sight. Since Israel launched its invasion of Gaza nearly four months ago, Prime Minister Netanyahu has said nothing about what Israel's strategy is for the future of Gaza or the people of Gaza after Gaza is in ruins and the war ends. Obliterating civilian infrastructure, and that's happening now with demolitions set to take down homes and infrastructure, makes it impossible for people to have a place to return to. Intentionally re reducing to rubble, hospitals, schools, mosques, and apartment buildings is not right. Forcibly displacing two million people and creating a humanitarian catastrophe and looming famine. This is not an acceptable strategy. And the inescapable conclusion is that Netanyahu government is not listening. It's not listening to the White House and President Biden. It's not listening to key Arab governments that are imploring Israel to change course. Their belief, which I share, is that the way to prevent a wider war and to begin building a safer and ultimately more secure Middle East is to stop the killing and otherwise mistreating of the innocent Palestinians. Yet Prime Minister Netanyahu, who has rejected out of hand the right of Palestinians to have a state of their own, is stubbornly pursuing what can only be called a scorched earth policy. It's difficult not to conclude that his enemy is not only Hamas, but the Palestinians. And to make matters worse, he and other Israeli officials continue to deny there is a humanitarian crisis in Gaza, despite the overwhelming evidence to the contrary. How much worse does the situation have to get in Gaza? How much wider of a war in the Middle East will be accepted before we use the leverage America does have, including the withholding of additional lethal aid to get Israel to stop that bombing campaign, to negotiate a ceasefire in the release of the remaining hostages, and to allow 
to allow the dramatic increase in food and water and other humanitarian aid that is needed to prevent the widespread starvation, death, and disease the United Nations and other relief organizations warn is imminent, and to negotiate an end to the war. The massive destruction and loss of innocent life is not making Israel more secure. To the contrary, it's eroded progress Israel has made with its neighboring Arab states, it's inflamed tensions in the Middle East, and it's incited attacks on American soldiers. It has severely damaged Israel's reputation on the world stage and set back the cause of peace in the Middle East, which we must continue to strive to achieve. The possibility of a two-state solution, which Prime Minister Netanyahu has publicly rejected, is on life support. Throughout the years, the United States has provided tens of billions of dollars in aid to the Netanyahu government. In effect, consistently financing a government that implements policies that we support for a two-state solution, but pursues policies that make it impossible for a viable independent state of Palestine to emerge. That's been endorsed, a two-state solution, by Republican and Democratic administrations. We have to mean what we say. This must end, and it must end now by sparing innocent Palestinians in Israel's pursuit of Hamas and renewing vigorous efforts to create a viable Palestinian state, something the Biden administration is doing energetically. Mr. President, a majority of the Senate has voted to approve the additional military aid for Israel. I know that the White House will not treat that as a blank check we must increase pressure on the Netanyahu government to respect international humanitarian law. And I'm very encouraged by the White House's release on February 8th of an unprecedented national security memorandum based on an amendment sponsored by Senator Van Holland, co-sponsored by many of us, including you, Mr. President. It articulates a global policy and reporting requirements that put puts Israel and other recipients of U.S. military aid on notice that our aid is contingent on their written commitment and adherence to U.S. and international laws of armed conflict and allowing the unimpeded delivery of humanitarian aid. And I also urge the Secretary of State to apply the Leahy Law passed by my predecessor, Patrick Leahy of Vermont, apply that to Israel. This has not been the practice. For far too long, successive administrations have failed to apply the law to the Israeli Defense Forces, despite many incidents when the IDF was credibly implicated in violations of human rights of Palestinians. The Leahy Law is the law of the United States. It should be enforced. Finally, I do want to say a few words about the southern border. Our immigration system is broken. Our southern border is overwhelmed with thousands of would-be immigrants on a near daily, daily basis. Asylum seekers can wait five years or more planting roots in this country before learning their fate. 
They are forced to wait to join the workforce when they are here and face bureaucratic backlogs. Most potential immigrants have no meaningful way to enter the U.S. legally, given the failure of Congress to improve the system for 30 years. And our systems, all around the, our cities, all around our country, are dealing with the consequences and are exhausted. In essence, we don't have a functioning immigration system. And I commend my colleagues, Senators Sinema, Langford, and Murphy for their extraordinary work. And I'm very disappointed that that effort was rejected and repudiated uh, by our Republican colleagues. The agreement proposed reforms to improve border security that both Republicans and Democrats have long recognized that we need to significantly improve our operations at the border and have a secure border. It provides that agreement for additional pathways for legal migration, and we need legal migration. Our rural communities, like those in Vermont, rely on immigrant and seasonal farm workers and know how important improving our legal migration system is to our rural economy. And we need to address the limited number of family and employment-based visas, to address the backlog of green card application that already exceeds 10 million people. And we need more worker visas and other alternatives for our employers to be able to get the job done. I voted last week to proceed on that first version of that border agreement worked out by our colleagues in the hope that we could work and pass amendments, improve it, and pass it. But Republicans who first embraced that agreement or that effort turned their backs once Donald Trump insisted they take no action to secure the southern border before the northern election. Donald Trump has a campaign. We have a responsibility to govern, and that includes taking action on the southern border. That situation is the result of inaction over many years. Republicans and Democrats can take credit for some of those failures. But we have to do there what we have done in so many other places, work together to get a secure border, find pathways for legal migration, and have safety and security at a border we control. Mr. President, I'm going to end where I began, and that's thanking Leader Schumer and Leader McConnell for the extraordinary effort getting us to this vote and this important legislation. But I also want to say to the Senate staff and to our Senate pages who have been here all night, thank you. We're very grateful for the work that you do. This was not just an important day. It's been an important several months where the business of the Senate debating the important issues of our time occurred, and you all have been part of history. Mr. President, I yield back. Senator from Colorado. Thank, thank you, Mr. President. I know that the hour, it's not late, I guess it's early, but um, the staff has been on the floor all night. I know the pages are exhausted because they've been working. Um, but I, I wanted just to say, and I know this presiding officer doesn't deserve to, to have to spend five minutes listening to me. I, I just wanted to say a word as we get out of here about 
where we are. I want to thank the Senator from Vermont for his moral leadership and for his clarity in this difficult time. Um, not that long ago, we had a conversation with the President of Ukraine, President Zelensky. And it was while we were still in the midst of COVID and we were meeting on Zoom. And he said to the United States Senate that the Ukrainian people were fighting so they could live their lives the way we live our lives, the way we live our lives in the United States. And more recently, uh, he, in our last meeting with him, which was in person, he came here and met us in the, in the old Senate, or in the, I guess, the Mansfield room. And he said to us that um, they were going to continue to fight, that if we didn't support them, they would lose, uh, but that they would never stop fighting because the Ukrainian people know what freedom is about and, and, they, and they wouldn't stop. He thought that they could succeed if we continued to support them. He was very clear about, about that. And um, it wasn't clear to me that we were going to be able to fulfill our commitment. There have been moments, I've been here now 14 years or so, there have been moments when I have really wondered whether the United States Senate is just a relic of its former self, that our democracy is a relic of its former self, that the evidence that Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin believes have piled up over the decades and over the century has put the United States in a place where it has no capacity to lead anymore. That is what they say at every negotiating table that we find ourselves with, with them, that the 20th century was our century, but this is a different century. It's a century for totalitarianism, a century for authoritarianism, a century where might makes right. As the presiding officer knows, my mom was born in Warsaw in 1938, a Polish Jew, the worst place on planet Earth that anybody could have been born, in the worst moment when anybody could be born. And I'm going to spare you because we're, we're here and, it's, and we got to move on, but they lived through the worst of, of, that humanity had to offer. My mom and my, my grandparents, Helena Kledgeman and John Kledgeman, uh, but they finally came here to the United States of America after the war was over to rebuild their shattered lives. And they, and they said to me uh, that uh, they had been happy here ever since. That was their language. With humanity's greatest treasures, democracy, freedom, and love, as they described it. And they hoped that in the course of our lives that their grandchildren would be able to spread these treasures around the world. And tonight, that's what we've done here in the United States Senate. Tonight, we've said that the rule of law matters, that democracy matters, that we recognize that the fight the Ukrainian people have been in for the last two years, a very unexpected fight with with unexpected successes along the way, more predictable 
setbacks on all, along the way, but an extraordinary testament to the Ukrainian people's courage, to their stamina, to their willingness to fight just to be free, just to live, as President Zelensky said, just to live the life that we have lived, to die in the cause of democracy. That's what they have done over the last two years. And I hate to say this, but it's true. There, are, there were moments over the last four months or six months or so when it was not clear that the United States Senate was going to be able to overcome our divisions to support the Ukrainian people in their battle, even with the knowledge that we have a particular role to play, at least in theory, as the United States of America, when it comes to battles around the world between democracy and totalitarianism, an obligation we have never fulfilled perfectly, but an obligation that, at least since World War II, we have had to carry uniquely among all nations. I will say, Mr. President, just as I come to a close, that I have had my doubts over the last 14 years about whether this place could operate again, whether we could make hard decisions on behalf of the American people, our children and our grandchildren, whether it was just a relic of some bygone era. And that's been particularly hard for me because I actually believe in democracy. I believe in the wisdom that's created, not from you know, what I think or what you think or what the senator from Georgia thinks or even what the pages who are sitting on this floor thinks, but the wisdom that comes from the collision of our disagreements and the collision of our disputes disagreements and disputes that can only happen in a free country because with the First Amendment and the ability to express oneself, with a free press. The only places, the only human societies where everybody agrees with each other are totalitarian societies where there's somebody in charge telling everybody what to think, like Putin's Russia. Like the situation in England when the founders were trying to break away into a new, a new republic. And what I want to say to the American people tonight is, or this morning is, that not that we're out of the woods and not that they can take their foot off the gas, but that today we actually did something pretty significant here in this place. And we stood with the Ukrainian people who have stood for democracy for these two years, who have given their lives in the, just to live their lives the way we live our lives, having been invaded by a tyrant who had violated the post-World War, World War II order. The United States Senate not only supported it, but did it with a vote of 70 did it with a vote where 20 Republicans split from President Trump's view of this world, which is a very different view than either Democratic or Republican presidents have had since World War II. 
they're willing to split with that for the good of our nation, for the good of our world. That's not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy vote for them to take. And I don't think there was one of us who would have predicted four months ago that we would have ended up in a place with those 20 votes. So I want to say thank you to the people that took those votes. I want to say thank you to Senator Schumer for his leadership, for his patience. I know there are days when he feels like I'm the biggest complainer around this place. But he did an amazing job holding this thing together over the last four months. And I want to thank Senator McConnell for his role in making sure we ended up where we have ended up. And for a moment, at least in my view, we've restored confidence in our ability to do hard things just in the nick of time, just in the nick of time. And there is so much left for us to do. There's so many things that are beyond our control in this world <clears throat> that I think it really is important for us to get our act together. It is really important for us to have an education system in this country that delivers opportunity rather than reinforcing the income inequality that we have, which is a threat to our democracy. It's really important for us to find a way to work together to create a healthcare system that doesn't make the lives of the American people a misery. To create, as the senator from Vermont was saying, an immigration system that actually is a strength for the American people rather than a headwind for the American people. To strengthen our democracy. All of those things are work that's left in front of us. But what we were able to do tonight, I think, tells us that we actually can meet these challenges. We can meet this moment. We can overcome the divisions that tear at, at our communities and tear at our democracy, that are a threat to our democracy and a threat to our future, a threat to our children. And that each of us can make a difference making the world a little bit better. There are a lot of people in this town who believe that the House of Representatives will never pass this bill. They believe that politics has already made the decision about whether or not this bill is going to be passed. I don't believe that. I'll make a prediction this morning. And my prediction is that this bill is going to pass in the House of Representatives and that this country is going to stand with Ukraine, that we're going to stand with NATO, that we're going to stand with free people all over this planet in a fight that's no less important today than it was when my mom was born in Warsaw in 1938. It is exactly the same fight with exactly the same importance. And the United States has a new role to play, I think, in a new century. And tonight, I think, or this morning, we've demonstrated that the United States Senate is, is going to lead. And I am very, very grateful for that. Mr. President, I yield the floor. The Senate stands adjourned until 3.30 on Friday.